Uh, looking forward to spending this morning with you and then coming back this evening for the, the revival service. So what I want to do in this Sunday school hour is to think about God together. And what I want to do is take a, a portion of our time to just answer the question of can we know God and how? And then I want to use some time at the end to um, look at a, a couple attributes of God. Um, so the first thing I want to do, though, is actually just, maybe you're wondering, why would we do this? Why, why spend time doing this? It feels abstract and irrelevant to our lives and all those things. Um, so the first, first response I have to that is that it's actually quite practical to think about who God is. Um, J.I. Packer, he's an author and a theologian, he says that you know, it, would be, it would be cruel to take a, a guy who's grown up in a tribe in a third world country and just take him with no map and no instruction and just drop him in New York City. It'd be cruel. He would have no idea where to go. He wouldn't know what, he just wouldn't know anything. And, and so Packer says that if, if we ignore thinking about God, if we don't just think about who he is, he says that you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life. This is his world that he's made. He made us. The lives that we live are lives he's given to us. And so if we don't think about him and his world, we are like the tribesmen dropped in New York City, clueless about how to navigate life. The second reason I think we should do this is that it's a really good way to shift our perspective. I think through the week it's easy to get to have our, our, our eyes consumed with the world around us and to get consumed with our problems and the things that cause us anxiety. And just lifting our eyes up and looking at God is a good, good antidote to that. And then third is that it's, really, it's a privilege to, to know him and to worship him. Um, and it's hard to worship something that you don't know. You know so just like a, a husband could say, I love my wife, and I don't know anything about her. <laughs> you would question, okay, do you really love your wife, or are you just saying that? And I think this, we, want, we want, as Christians, we want to say we love the Lord, and for that love to be informed. We want to know him. So it's a worthy thing, I think, to, to think about God, to ponder who he is. So before we get in, let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, it is a a weighty privilege to think about you, to say things about you. We want what we think and what we say to be true and right. And Lord, we don't want to do this just for some sort of mental exercise We want to think about you so that our hearts can be inflamed to love you more more fully so that our worship of you is more honoring to you and so that the lives we live give you more glory. So we pray that you be with us over these next uh, few minutes as we think about you. Lord, help us to not be distracted. Help us to, to think rightly and to grow in our love for you. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So you've got this handout, I hope, 
So this, the first half of it is where we'll be for a while. It's the one that says the, worship, the, the knowledge of God, how? Because that's the first thing I want to do is answer the question, can we know God? Because if God is God, then he's not like us. Right? He's, he is totally different than we are. He's a different kind of being. I think it's our instinct to just think that God is like a bigger, better version of us. That he's like us, but you know, infinitely stronger and smarter and more powerful and all those things. But that's not the case. God isn't like us. And this is one reason I think that God, you think about the commands, the commandments, not to make a carved image. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is that um, well, of course, it's, it's bad to make something and worship it that's not God. But even if we wanted to make something to represent the Lord, we would be restricted to make things that we know. It would have to look like something that we can see. We know what it looks like. And with God, we, we just, he is, there's a sense in which he is incomprehensible. So anything that we would make would fail to be a true representation of, of what he is. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. And then another, another um, just point for this is that in Psalm 50, you don't need to turn there, and it's not on your handout, but in Psalm 50, God uh, spends a few verses kind of chastising wicked people. And one of the things he says is that, um, he says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. And then he says this, you thought that I was one like yourself. So, and he's talking to these wicked people. And one of the things that, that makes them wicked is that they have thought that the Lord is like them. And so the assumption is that they are wrong, of course. He is not like them, and he's not like us. There is a distance between him and us. The one theologian says it this way, is the distance between God between God and us, is the gulf between infinite and finite, between eternity and time, between all and nothing. So does that mean we should just like pack it up and say, well, we can't know God. We'll, we just hope we get it right and we'll find out. No, um, we can know God. Uh, even though you know we are, we're limited by time and he's not. We're limited by space and he's not. This this unlikeness between him and us doesn't mean that we can't know him. But knowing God is kind of a unique endeavor. So think about uh, like taking taking a science class in junior high or in high school. What do you do to learn things in those classes or like an English class? You either read a book or you go look at something under a microscope, you just kind of go find what it is you're trying to learn, and you just look at the thing, and you, and you study it. But studying God is not quite like that, because he, he's not just something that we go and, and try to think hard enough, and we figure it out. Because he's so different than us, uh, we can only know him because he has made himself knowable. So he's not, he's not a rock formation that we can just go and look, look at for a while and, and figure it out. 
No, we can only know him because he's made himself available to us. And what's amazing is that he didn't need to do this. He could have just left us in the dark. But, so it's an act of incredible mercy that he has made it so that we can actually know God. We can know the, the one who made us. We can know the one who, who hung the stars. So that's the first question is, can we know God? And the answer is yes, because he's revealed himself. The second question, and this is where we get to your handout, is how? How has God revealed himself? You know, another way of saying that God has revealed himself is to say that God has spoken. And if God has spoken, then we want to listen. So how has God spoken? Well, the first way is through something called general revelation. So one way to, that God has spoken is just through the world that he's made. Um, and again, he didn't need to do this, but he did. So Psalm 19, I've got a couple of verses there on your handout. Psalm 19 starts this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens declare. The skies are speaking to us. And in verse 2, day to day pours out speech. So there's more speaking going on. The heavens declare, the days speak, and night to night reveals knowledge. So God has revealed himself in creation. This is called general revelation. Um, and he, he's revealed himself in the big things, right? The things that, that show us his majesty. Uh, you think of Psalm 8 when, when David writes, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place. The, those big things really speak to us, right? Have any of you been to the Grand Canyon? Yeah. I mean, you, you stand in front of that thing and you get a sense of the majesty of God. So those big things reveal, reveal God to us. But he's also revealed himself in small things. So think about the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is teaching and there's this moment where he's trying to tell people about God's kindness and how God provides for his people. And what does is, what is Jesus point to to make, his, to make his points? Well, he looks at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And he's doing that to tell the, tell the people and to tell us about the kind of God that we have. So even the, the big things, they tell us about God's majesty. The small things tell us about God's attention to detail and his care for even those who are insignificant like us. <clears throat> there's this great line that one theologian uses when he says that uh, you know, there's, there's no portion of the world, however minute, that does not e exhibit at least some sparks of beauty and that on each of God's works, his glory is engraved. So on everything you see outside, God's glory is engraved. So God has spoken in creation. Uh, it's, it's God's revelation of himself generally. It's not specific. You know, we can't, you can't put your hand over your ear under the night sky and, and hear words. But if you just have eyes to see, you can behold the, the majesty of God and the, the provision of God in all these things. And I think it's kind of a tragic irony, isn't it, that 
Some of the people who spend their lives studying general, create, general revelation, the, the created order, looking through telescopes and looking at microscopes, it's a tragic irony that some of those folks have come to the conclusion that there is no God when, in fact, the exact opposite should be the conclusion that you draw. You look closely enough at the world God has made. I mean, there's a reason that people worshiped the sun and worshiped the moon because these things are so glorious and so majestic. So it's tragic that people have concluded that there is no God, but it's not all that surprising. And so that's why I have that Romans 1 passage on your handout. Because Paul actually, he, he knows people. He knows that this is going to be the case. So he says in Romans 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So he's talking about the general revelation, right? God has spoken, and so there are things that, that, that we can just see about God in the created order. Verse 20, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So there are things that you can clearly perceive about God in the created order. So, Paul says, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, in the sense that they they could perceive things about him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So God's general revelation puts himself on display. You know, a number of years ago, I I spent a summer in Juneau, Alaska. Has anyone ever been to Alaska? That's a great place to see uh, general revelation. And at one point, I was having a conversation with a guy who who wasn't a Christian. He, He didn't know the Lord. And we were having this conversation, and it wasn't going really well. I was trying to communicate the gospel to him. And he finally said at the end of our conversation, he said, you know, and this guy was visiting Alaska that summer just like I was. He said, you know, if I've ever been tempted to believe in God, it's being up here. Because on, on a nice day when the clouds were not there, you could see mountains, you could see the, the, the ocean, you could see a glacier. I mean, it was, it was, it was glorious up there. And this guy finally had to admit, if I've ever been tempted to believe, it's, it's just seeing the the glory. The creation was speaking to him. So what what does this even mean for us uh, as Christians? How can we respond to this idea of general revelation? One is to go outside and open your eyes. It's it's good for the soul to spend time outdoors. Um, Go outside, pick up a leaf whenever they start falling this fall. Pick up a leaf and just Pay attention to the detail and see the way God has, has created these things. Look at the sun. And then think about the fact that there are like millions of those things in the universe. And God made every single one. And you know, one, one way that the created order, I think, can minister to us is that we can be so self-obsessed and self-centered. At least I can. And going outside... 
is a good way just to realize this is a big old world we live in, and we are a small part of it. So those are, that's one way we can know God, is through general revelation. Any questions on that, on that part so far? I'm hoping we'll have time for questions at the end. But anything so far? Okay, so the next, next way we can know God is through special revelation. And first, I'm thinking about Scripture. So God has spoken to us in His Word, right? And He has spoken differently than He does in the created order. Because the, the creation, there's not enough information there to save us. You can't go outside and spend a week in the woods and know that God has sent His Son to die for sinners. So we need, a, a, we need more revelation to make us wise unto salvation. And so God has given us His Word. Um, you know, Paul says that the Scriptures are God-breathed. He himself, God himself, is the, he is the inspiring force behind Scripture. So maybe you haven't noticed this before, but there are a few, t- few places in Scripture where we see this process actually happening. So God speaks to Moses, and he tells him to write down what I'm telling you. In, in Exodus 17 and Exodus 34, God tells Moses, write this down. So we have this record of God speaking to Moses, Moses writing it down, and we have the record of what was said. So when you read what Moses wrote, you can know this is God's word. You think of the prophets, how uh, God tells Jeremiah, for example, I have put my words in your mouth. And then you've got all these other prophets saying things like, the word of the Lord came to me. When the prophets spoke, God spoke. So when you read the prophets, you can know that you are reading divine words. And then the New Testament, it's the same thing. Jesus tells his disciples, when I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to make sure you know everything you need to know. He's going to lead you into all truth and bring remembrance of all that I've said. So when we read the writings of the New Testament, we know this has been inspired by the Spirit So the New Testament is God's word. It's him speaking to us. A number of years ago, there was this article that uh, John Piper wrote that got all sorts of kind of funny attention because he he, he wrote this article about hearing God speak. And people got all up in arms that, was he saying that he heard God audibly speak to him? And what it was is that people were not quite paying attention to what he was saying, he was describing his experience of reading the Bible. And I think that's something that we can take away from this, is that knowing that God has revealed himself in his word means that when scripture speaks, God speaks. I forget who first said this, if it was Martin Luther or someone else, but he said something like, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. So the the application for us here is straightforward, right? Attend to God's word. Spend time in it. Read it. Memorize it. I think it's, it's hard to grow and it's hard to feel connected to the Lord if we're not listening to him. Just like human relationships, right? Sometimes we feel distant from people if we haven't talked to them or listened to them in a while. This is the same thing with the Lord. 
And he has, look at what he has done for us to make himself available. I mean, we in the English-speaking world are so spoiled to the, to the point that we can get in little nitpicky fights about what translation of English is best, uh, which is, a, those are important conversations to have. But God has made it so that he has spoken, his word has been written, and it has been translated into our language. And right now I'm reading this, this biography of William Tyndale, who is the man who first translated the Greek and Hebrew into English. He ended up getting burned alive for it. So when we have our, we can sit in our, in the comfort of our homes, drinking warm coffee with our Bible on our lap. It is an unbelievable blessing to have that. God is, God is there. He is speaking to us. So when we feel distant from him, sometimes it's just us being lazy. You know, we're just, we're not opening our Bible and reading it. It's there. His words are right there. This is another reason, too, that Bible translation is such an important work across the world. There are, there are too many people who don't have the Bible in their own language. So if you ever hear about a chance to support that kind of endeavor, I'd encourage you to, to consider it. Our church has the, the blessing of supporting a couple different missionaries who have gone to different parts of the world. There's one family that our church supports. They've been in Papua New Guinea for like 30 years. When they got there, they didn't know the language. And not just that, there, uh, there, there was no written language. So they had to go there, learn it, and then this family from, from the United States put that language into writing for the first time, and then he's been translating the Bible for them. And the village has just been totally transformed. I mean, they've got, they've got a church with elders. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. This, this family has gone and flipped a, a culture on its head because he's made God's word available to them. So that's, that's one way God has spoken is through his written word. And then a third way, just real briefly, is uh, the special revelation of God sending his son, the Lord Jesus. So Hebrews 1, I've got this on your handout. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, so there it is speaking, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So God has spoken to us in his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. That is mind-boggling, that, that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. <clears throat> so to summarize to this point, can we know God? Yes, because he's revealed himself. And how has he revealed himself? Through general revelation in the created order, through scripture, and through Christ. So what I want to do now is actually take, if you yeah, flip over your hand up to the other side, I want to do a brief study of two of God's attributes. So there are a number of, of things you can study when it comes to God. Uh, there's uh, so many attributes you can spend time thinking about. And one way that, that people have 
divided these up is to use this category of communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Those words are mouthfuls. A communicable attribute, I think I have this on your handout. <clears throat> yeah, a communicable attribute is an attribute that God shares with us to at least some degree. So like when we, when we talk about God's love or his goodness or his holiness, he's communicated those to us. Like we, we actually experience those things. We know to some degree what it means for God to be love because we can experience love. We know what it means for him to be holy because we can grow in holiness. But then there are these other attributes that are called incommunicable. And those are attributes of God that he doesn't share with us. So things like his omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful. We have no idea <laughs> what that would be like to be all-powerful. Uh, what would be another example? His eternity, what we're gonna, one thing we're going to talk about. We have no idea what it would be like to be eternal, to be unending. So there are communicable and there are incommunicable. And again, let me just remind you that if this feels abstract and irrelevant, just remember we're thinking about our God here. We're thinking about the one that we worship. We want our worship of him to be informed and, and true. So what I want to do is take an example of one of each of these categories. One incommunicable attribute and one communicable. So the one I want to do that's incommunicable is God's eternity, the fact that he's eternal. And on one hand, this idea is really simple. It's just that God has no beginning and no end. So on one hand, that's really straightforward, right? It's all over the Bible that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the one who was and is and is to come. So on one hand, it's simple. But on the other hand, it's kind of hard to articulate for what, what it means for God to be eternal. So let's just try a couple statements that might help us get there. That first one is that idea that God has no beginning. Just try to think about that for a minute. God never began. It seems simple, but again, it stretches our minds to try to think about this. He never started. Um, the reason it's impossible for us to even understand this is because we just don't share that at all. We all have a start date. We all were born on a certain day. And we don't even have vocabulary to think about what it means for God to never begin. And I think, you know, when you read Scripture, you even get the sense that the, the authors of the Bible are, are struggling with it too. So when, when God is described as the ancient of days, I think that's trying to get at the idea that God had no beginning. But when we think about the word ancient, we just mean someone who's really old. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not what we're trying to communicate about God. He's not just really old and getting older. He never began. He has just always been. <clears throat> the next assertion is where it gets a little more full for us. Um, this is the idea that God is actually above or outside of time. So I, I want to think, think with you about this for just a minute. Think about how we experience time. We experience it as a succession of moments, right? We experience one moment, and then it's gone. Then it's the next one, and then that one's gone. So we just kind of go through time 
like a straight line. But God doesn't experience time like that. For him, all he knows is an eternal present. Everything that we experience as you know, present, past, and future, he sees everything as an eternal present. We can explain that a little further. Um, I don't want to get too bogged down into it. But to experience time is to, is to go through change, right? It means that the version of, of us that existed at 9.47 and 55 seconds is a little bit different than the one who, ex- who existed at 9.47 and 58 seconds. You know, we're different from moment to moment. There are things that are happening to us. So to say that God would go through time that way would mean that he would have to undergo change, which we just can't, we can't affirm that. I think one, one helpful il- illustration for this comes from this Puritan theologian. It's, the, it's like the difference between a river and an ocean. So a river moves, right? It goes from one location to the next. And it's at the mercy of, of the, the climate, of the, the topography of the land it's going through, whether it's going up or down or around a bend. It's the water in a river is at the mercy of the things around it, but not an ocean, right? An ocean is just stable. That thing is not moving. It is, it is what it will be. And that's sort of like what it is with God. He is stable and fixed and unchanging. If this feels kind of confusing, just know that uh, St. Augustine, who maybe is like the, one of the smartest guys in the history of the church, he said that when, I'm, when someone asks me about God's eternity, I think I know the answer until I have to say something. So if you feel, that, I, feel I find that encouraging, that, <laughs> that we can kind of, we think we know these things and then we have to explain it and then it's like, okay, I actually have no idea what, I'm, what we're really talking about. But Augustine also said about God, he said, your today does not give way to tomorrow, and nor does it follow your yesterday. Your today is eternity. That's how it is with God. So when we talk about God being eternal, everything for him is, he sees it all in a moment. And then we've got some evidence here on your handout. So that was the idea. The evidence comes from all over the place. Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Job 36. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. In 1 Timothy 1. To the king of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. So then I want to talk about how is this relevant for us as Christians, as God's people. I think it's relevant for us because um, one book I, I read put this well. Everything that we enjoy in life, in this world, is dissatisfying for two different reasons. One is that those things don't last. Now, have you ever been on vacation? And, and it's like you're really enjoying your time. But the whole time you're aware 
this is going to end. <laughs> I got to go back home and go back to work. This vacation is going to end. So everything we experience in this life, even the good things, it's like it's, we feel the limits of time on our lives. So that's one reason the things we enjoy are dissatisfying. The second reason is that everything that we enjoy is never quite as satisfying as we would hope it would be. I don't know if any of you guys are sports people or pay attention to sports at all, but it's common to, to hear about professional athletes who thought that winning a championship was going to fulfill them ultimately, and then to realize they win a championship and that just wasn't it. They're the same person they were the day before. So I think everything we enjoy, it's limited by the fact that it ends, and it's just never quite as satisfying as we expected it to be. But think about the way that God answers both of those problems. And think about what our, our experience will be like in eternity, in heaven. He is eternal, so our enjoyment of him will never end. And he is infinite, so we will never be bored with him. So think about our experience of heaven will be something like pure joy without the threat of it ever ending. Isn't that going to be glorious? It, is, it will be the ultimate vacation. That's right. <clears throat> so that's, that's God's eternity. Now I want to think about a communicable attribute, a little simpler for us, I think, and that's God's wisdom. Does anyone want to offer a definition of wisdom? What does it mean to be wise? Application of knowledge, that is a very good definition of what it means to be wise. Yep, I think that's exactly right. So it's different from knowledge. Um, you think about the difference is knowledge is knowing that the stove is hot. Wisdom is not touching the stove. <laughs> so that's part of parenting, right? Is trying to impart wisdom to your kids and then giving them the ability to act on that knowledge. So knowledge is... Knowing what's good and what's evil. Wisdom is loving what's good and hating what's evil and, and living rightly. So that, yeah, that's an excellent definition. So with God, he knows all things. There's nothing he doesn't know. And his wisdom is his ability to orchestrate the, the world, all things, to bring about what he wants to bring about. So he has all the resources at his disposal to bring about the ends that he wants. So there are, there are two ways that the Bible mostly talks about God's wisdom. One is in creation. So this comes out really clearly in Proverbs 8. So Proverbs 8 is this really fascinating chapter because, well, in, in Proverbs in general, you know, wisdom, wisdom takes on the role of a person and, and wisdom speaks. So here in these verses in Proverbs 8, this is wisdom speaking. <clears throat> it says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. And, and it goes on. And this is wisdom speaking about its role in creation. So wisdom was there. 
And I think it says in, in following verses that wisdom was there like a master workman, part of the creating process. So this is why, kind of like what we talked about earlier with general revelation, wisdom is it's like it's woven into the world around us. And it's evidence of God's his skill and his wise management. So a few years ago, there was this video that I, I remember watching um, of, of these biologists who had, they had before them this dissection of a giraffe. And these biologists, what they were actually trying to do was look at this giraffe as a way to somehow make it look like there were some arbitrary parts of the giraffe's body, as, as though the, the design wasn't all that intelligent. But then one of these biologists asks another one about the like, internal organs of this giraffe, and I'm not pretending like I know these things. I'm, just, you know, I'm not a biologist. But I guess in a giraffe, all the internal organs are kind of smushed up next to each other. And so one of the biologists said, that seems sort of strange and like it doesn't make sense. And, and another, an older guy answered, and he said, well, actually, it's because when a giraffe runs, what those internal organs do is they, when the, when the giraffe is on his front legs, those organs push up on his diaphragm and they help him exhale. And then when the giraffe is on its back legs, those organs move out of the way to let the diaphragm inhale. And so they're, they're talking about this, and one of the bio, so you know, it functions like a piston almost in a, in a car. And the biologist says, it's wonderfully done. It could not have been more wonderfully designed. And then he says, evolved. <laughs> he caught himself. But, but he saw, they were looking at, at the wisdom of the maker in this giraffe. And it's like they couldn't help but just glory in it, at the, the, the majesty involved, the detail. So the world, because the wisdom was present in, in the creation, the world is just one big call to worship. Uh, the genius of it invites us to marvel at it. So that's one way we see God's wisdom. The next way is in redemption. So when you're thinking about creation, the wisdom of God is pretty obvious, right? Because of what we've already talked about. The Grand Canyon, the stars, the, all this stuff, it's, his wisdom is obvious. You don't need to believe, you just need to see it. But with redemption, seeing the wisdom of God there requires faith. It requires belief. <clears throat> because he has done things in a way that we would not probably do them, and in a way that's not just readily understood. But once you do, once you do see God's wisdom in redemption, you just stand back and you marvel and you worship. So that's actually what I want to do, is I want to just run through some of God's acts in redemption and just glory in his wisdom together. So think about... Um, in the Old Testament, God decided to make a nation. So who did he choose as the father of that nation? A barren, uh, an old man with a barren wife and no kids. He's trying to make a nation. And he picks a, an old guy who's like 100 years old and his wife can't have kids. I would have been looking for the biggest family I could find for a starting point. So then he forms the nation for himself. And he chooses, he says in Deuteronomy, not Egypt, not the biggest, strongest power in the world. He says he chooses Israel 
because they were the smallest, weakest nation. I would not have done that. And then eventually that, that nation needs a king, needs a king after God's own heart. So who does he choose? He chooses this little punk who's out with the sheep, who his dad doesn't even like bring him with the other brothers. Well, you know, when, when they're looking for the king, uh, Jesse brings his sons and David's not even there because he's so small. He just figures there's no way that guy's going to be king. That's who God chooses. Eventually, God's people need a savior and the kingdom needed restoration. So the father sent the son. Okay, we can kind of get behind that idea. That sounds pretty wise, just right on the top of, right, right off the bat. But the son didn't come with an army, and didn't come with a sword, right? He came teaching and preaching. And then this king who came, he didn't gather to himself like 500 of the strongest men he could find. He picked 12 guys, some of whom were fishermen. Uh, there's a tax collector. So he's not doing things the way that we would have done them. And then this son, this king, didn't come to kill his enemies, he, but the opposite. He let them kill him. And now, to spread his kingdom, what does he tell us to do? Does he tell us to go fight? Does he tell us to bring a sword? No. He tells us to go talk to people and baptize them. And to represent himself on the earth he usually doesn't choose the biggest, strongest, smartest, clever people. He chooses people like us. <laughs> no offense. And in this kingdom that God has put together, the greatest people are the people who are the greatest servants and the most humble. I mean, today's Sunday. There are going to be stadiums across the country filled with thousands and thousands of people. These these really impressive gatherings of people. But where does God promise to be? In little, unimpressive-looking gatherings like this. This is where the gospel will go forth from. So in redemption, God, God's wisdom is only beheld in faith because it is, he is doing things way differently than we would have done them. I mean, who would have sent the Savior as a baby? And who would have, who would stand in front of the cross and see this dying, bleeding, humiliated man and said, behold, the wisdom of God. But that's exactly what it is. So you can see why Paul ends Romans 11 saying, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Who would dare to be his counselor? And in 1 Corinthians 1, I think I've got this on your handout. We learn that, that Jesus isn't just a display of God's wisdom. He is God's wisdom. So twice in that passage, he says, So for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then later, he says the same thing, that Christ himself is God's wisdom. So again, we come to this question of how is this relevant for us? And it's relevant for us because if we can see God's wisdom in creation and see his wisdom in, in redemption, we see how wise he is. We see how, how much of a master craftsman he is. And we can trust him with our own lives. Even when it doesn't look like things make sense in how our lives are playing out, we can trust that there's a wise, eternal, powerful God orchestrating things Not arbitrarily, but, Paul says in Romans 8, for our good. He is working together all things for the good of those who love him. A.W. Tozer has this great line where he says about God, not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. So just think about that as you reflect on your life and you know, we don't always enjoy or appreciate how they unfold. And some of that's our own fault, right? We, we do things we regret, we make bad decisions, but we can trust that God is mysteriously and wisely working for our good. So that's the wisdom of God. I think a good example of a communicable attribute because he calls us to be wise, right? To ask him to make us wise. So it's 10.05. I'm guessing this is probably a good time to end, but I I did want to, there are a few minutes left for questions in case anyone has a question about attributes of God or anything we discussed or anything related to that. Pastor Matt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, if you want to think about uh, some of these things more, I'll recommend two little books that are really good. One is called The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And that one's nice because it's, he goes through a lot of these attributes and it's like four or five pages for each chapter. But he's really profound and it's really enjoyable. And another one that I've been reading recently is short and accessible. It's by a guy named Mark Jones, and it's called God Is. And the subtitle is like a devotional walk through the attributes of God. So that one, it's meant to be read devotionally. It's not some academic heavy work. It's really, again, the the chapters are short, and, and I've probably stolen from him. So if you read some of those chapters, you'll probably realize where I stole from him. Another one, if you do want to read something a little longer, a guy by the name of Matthew Barrett wrote a book called None Greater. And that that book is, I've been reading that book, that book is awesome. Um, Not really difficult, but it it will stir you to worship for sure. Of that one, his name is Matthew Barrett. And that book's called None Greater. Cool. Well, it's been a Hope you guys have appreciated the, the chance to think about our Lord. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll be done. God, you are higher than us. You are the one who inhabits eternity, who was and is and is to come, whose days have no end. And yet, 
You are also the one who is near to those who are contrite in spirit and broken-hearted. And so we are so glad that you, you are high and lifted up, and yet you are willing to condescend and be near to us. So we ask for this next, the rest of our morning as we lift up our voices together, as we hear your word together, that you would do that, that you would draw near to us and lift up our hearts and our, our voices and our minds so that we might behold you. We pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.